According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 16 is our passage again this morning. Matthew 16, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, and then chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. We are combining episodes 47, 48, and 49 in the Galilean ministry into one continuous outline, starting with uh, uh, the the foretelling of his death, uh, the description of why it is necessary, and then the uh, rebellion on Peter's part here with the God forbid it, Lord, this should never happen to you, and uh, then moving on to his rebuke, and then the issues here that close the chapter. So anyway, it's going to be one combined outline here uh, taking us down through the transfiguration. Again, that's Matthew 16:21 down through chapter 17 and verse 13. In Mark, it starts in chapter 8 and takes you through chapter 9, verse 13. And in Luke, it's all in chapter 9, verses uh, 22 through 36. So in Luke, anyway, it does not span two different chapters. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is equipped with God the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice in your faithfulness. We thank you for this time together and for the two prayer meetings this morning and now for the Bible class. We look to you to set aside distractions and open the eyes of our understanding. Give us eyes to see ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we uh, got a fairly good start on this, I think, last week. I want to jump right on into it, realizing that uh, we start with a from-this-time transition. And reading in verse 21 here of uh, Matthew 16, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. So the expression from that time marks that this is a transition. This marks the beginning and starting with this point and then every day after that point the message was on target that Jesus is on his way to the cross. This was not just a one-time message. This was a repeated message over and over and over again. From that time, Jesus began to show. And through the process of being shown at whatever point of time, we don't know how long it took for Peter to finally have enough of that, but Peter finally gets to a point where he says, uh, let's go back to those earlier messages. Let's talk about the, the message you had before this incident. And so Peter took him aside began to rebuke him. So we are clearly dealing with a turning point, a downhill slide at this point of time from here to the, uh, to the cross itself. Now secondly, and where we really exhausted our time last week, was talking about the potentialities. Point two, the plan of God clearly has a variety of potentialities. That's where in the plan of God he understands the potential, what might happen, what is the consequence of a different course of action? What is the consequence if somebody makes a different choice? What is the consequence as far as the what-ifs are concerned looking forward? Uh, And there are those in the scripture. We'll talk about those. Uh, We looked at Matthew 11, right? We turned to Matthew 11 last week. We looked at those. Uh, And there are other ways to illustrate that. I just think that Matthew 11 has the the easiest way to illustrate that. Uh, But The plan of God clearly has a variety of potentialities, but at this stage of his ministry, Jesus identified the necessity. Once you lock in on a reality, then you're dealing with the necessity. This is what God's plan is calling for. So Jesus identified the necessity of the reality of his coming passion, and he uses language of have to. He uses the particle day, D-E-I. And day, as a verb... Uh, denotes compulsion, it denotes necessity, it denotes the have-tos of the Christian way of life. We all are faced with the have-tos. God's plan has to be fulfilled. And so we uh, see it described here. He takes him and he begins to show his disciples that he must. The language there of must, that's the, the particle day, that's the verb there that says he has to. And the must 
uh, verb is always followed by the infinitives then of what is uh, what completes the have to. In this case, we have a, uh, a series of them, and we'll get back into these, this series here this morning. Every single one of them was a have to. And Jesus began to lock into the have-tos of God's plan. And I find this to be encouraging because Christ walked the walk we walk. Yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he was spirit and dwelled as a prophet. There were elements that were revealed to him ahead of time. But not the totality of everything was not revealed to him ahead of time. Let's face it, in our the finite limitations of our humanity, if we knew everything ahead of time, we'd chicken out. <laughs> right? If we knew everything... He gives us just enough to continue on in faith and to trust in, in what he has for us. We'll illustrate more of that here as well. So, to put it into our own application, we're here today and it's, it's the day that it is and we're looking forward and we don't know what, uh, what's coming up. We don't know, uh, for instance, the, the possibility to build a new church building and where is that going to be? What, what two acres of land are going to come available? Well, at this point, we don't know. Uh, we're considering a couple of different spots, two or three different spots. We've kind of got a, a direction in mind, maybe a little bit, but effectively we don't know. It's all they're all in the realms of potentiality right now. See, now if someone chooses to donate two acres of land, that would pretty well narrow our uh, <laughs> our potentialities would then become a reality, wouldn't it? We'd be locked in. But see, so long as it's still future, so long as we're looking forward, we've got these different things and we have to consider all of them. We don't know what God's will is for us. It might be, uh, you know, in location A or location B or whatever it might be. It's all up in the air at this point. But when we reach the, the point, where his will becomes known. For example, I mean, when if, if we have a Barnabas moment where uh, the land is just presented. Well, thank you, Lord. There's the, the, the will being made known, isn't it? We thank the Lord for his, uh, for his provision. Uh, the worst thing we can do is, is, to, uh, is to spit in the grace that's supplied and say, oh, no, no, we don't want that. <laughs> right? So when we get locked in, when we get... Um, convicted as it were and, and jesus is our illustration on this he is convicted and he's trying to teach these messages in such a way that his disciples will share the same conviction that it may happen at different stages at different times husbands may be convicted of things before their wives are or wives can be convicted of things years before their husbands finally clue into what's really going on all right so that what so what do you do you try to communicate that conviction. You try to demonstrate the will of God. And you uh, hopefully have the patience and grace to allow the, uh, the less clued in ones to, to catch up with your conviction. That's what's happening here. All right, so the language of necessity, the have-tos. He must go to Jerusalem. And the, in some cases, the language of obligation is a little hard for us to accept when it comes to God himself. We say, well, God is sovereign. He can do whatever he pleases. Yes. But he also has to be has to be consistent with his own character, with his own integrity. For example, the plan of salvation is perfect because it allows for righteousness to be satisfied. It allows for justice to be exercised, and it allows for, for love and grace to be manifest. And love and grace cannot be manifest without righteousness being satisfied and without justice being exercised. So I think if we, if, if we truly understand God's essence and his attributes, and we understand that they all must be consistent with each other, God can't do. There are a lot of things God cannot do. He cannot lie. Why can't he lie? Well, that's inconsistent with his veracity. He, there are things he cannot do, and that is he cannot be self-inconsistent. He must be true to his own essence. And that's really what the have-tos on God's part are all about. That's why the cross was necessary. Now, some of the other elements here. He must go to Jerusalem. This is an obligation. This is a have to. This is a fulfillment of expectations. This is also a fulfillment of patterns and shadows that had preceded it. Uh, it's not, it's, we could think in the, in the potentialities that, you know, so long as he was a sacrifice, could he not have uh, laid down his life in Bethlehem? Could he not have laid down his life in Capernaum or Tyre or Sidon or some of those places, uh, uh, Caesarea Philippi or any of those places. You know, could he not have just dropped dead anywhere and, and done the work? No. Jerusalem was the location. 
It was a location that was anticipated in prophetic message. It was uh, the location that was prefigured in the shadows and types. Every prophet that Jerusalem murdered was a shadow and a type of the prophet, the Christ, that was to come and be murdered in that same location. It would be unthinkable to think of all the shadows and all the types, and and they all are are, uh, put to death there at Jerusalem, and all of a sudden Jesus gets put to death in somewhere else. No, the foreshadowing, the typology, and the prophecies all are with reference to Jerusalem, the very mountain on which uh, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, for example. All right, so we have the uh, the principles of it there. Going to Jerusalem was a have-to. And uh, even if... Uh, uh, some of the disciples had a problem with it, even if some of the his own brothers were trying to get him to go to Jerusalem for their wrong motivations. And we're going to see that as well when we uh, when we get to that point. All right, the second half to is that he must suffer many things. That he must suffer many things. Now, this is where there's some confusion because this often gets interchanged with the cross itself. That it was uh, the the sufferings that accomplished our salvation. No, it was the offering of himself as our substitute that accomplished our redemption. The father was well pleased, not with the sufferings. He was well pleased with the offering that the sacrifice was uh, a substitutionary and sufficient and appropriate and proper and fitting Sacrifice. The sufferings, though, had another benefit. The sufferings were designed to perfect the author of our salvation. The sufferings were designed to equip the high priest of our confession. The sufferings completed the process of causing our great high priest to identify with you and I in our sufferings. This is how he is a faithful and merciful high priest insofar that he suffered the things that you and I suffer. And that he's able to identify with you and I in our sufferings. He's able to intercede uh, on our behalf with God the Father because he was tempted in all things even as we are. That includes the sufferings and yet without sin. And so when, when it comes down to it, the suffering, was it necessary for the redemption? We're told here that it was necessary. But let's, let's be very clear on the fact that it was not necessary for the redemption, that is, for the atonement, for the the uh, redemption of humanity and the, the provision to remove the sin of the world. It was necessary. Okay, don't get me wrong. It was necessary, but not redemptively necessary. Don't I use that word right? <laughs> okay, necessary for him to be our faithful and merciful high priest, but not necessary to accomplish the work of redemption. He could have gone to the cross without the suffering ahead of that, and still accomplish the redemption of the human race. That's what I'm trying to say on that. And I think if you want to bring in here the um, passage in Hebrews that uh, that speaks to this, uh, you find it here in the first two chapters, first three chapters of Hebrews. Um, probably the the most explicit statement comes in chapter two and verse seventeen. There are a lot of have-tos. I mean, even the the humanity itself was a have-to. Again, part of the identification. We're told in Hebrews 2.5, He did not subject to angels the world to come, but to man. And so, it was necessary for Him to become a man, made for a little while lower than the angels. Uh, Also, the aspect of suffering and death in verse 9 we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So the suffering was a part of what produces the crown and the glory and the honor, but that's not to say that the suffering was required for the redemption. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We describe describe this in the series on grace that we're doing now on Sunday. The series on grace, we'll tie this together tonight that the, the cross itself was a testimony of grace. And then, verse 10, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons of glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So, was this part of redemption, or was this part of perfecting Christ as the author of the salvation? This uh, continues to be described here. Look at verse 14. 
Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same. Reason why he was true humanity, so that he would be a partaker. He would be identifying, so that he would be our substitute. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now stop to consider. When he declared, it is finished, was redemption accomplished? Sin was removed. Sin was taken away. Justice was exercised. Wrath was complete. Father was satisfied. Now, he's still physically alive at that point. Why then does he not just come off the cross, assume, reassume his divine glory, and be done with it? The physical death was another one of the have-tos. But it was not a have-to that was necessary for the redemption. He said, it is finished. To die. it is finished. And you can preach that to the end of the ages, as far as I'm concerned. It is finished. And yet, there was still additional work to be done, including uh, surrendering a spirit, including uh, physical death, including the, the work in the grave, including then the physical resurrection, and, and everything else that followed after that. And so we see that the death, the physical death had a purpose, even after the spiritual death had taken place, and that the it is finished statement was uh, victoriously proclaimed. Then uh, you will note the... The help then that comes. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So the purpose for the suffering equips him to identify with you and I. And he is able to intercede and he's able to pray with a full understanding of the suffering that you and I go through. So there's the necessity of the suffering. Separate from the necessity of the death, separate from the necessity of the uh, sacrifice of himself for our redemption, but a necessity nonetheless. So going to Jerusalem was necessary. Suffering many things is necessary. The rejection is necessary. Rejection is necessary. Necessary for a number of reasons, not the least of which, of course, is that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. <laughs> God uh, prophesied the rejection, and so it had to take place. Now, they're still accountable for the rejection, even though God knew it was going to happen. God prophesied it was going to happen. The generation that did it is still the generation that did it, and the generation that came under God's wrath for doing it. But being rejected was necessary. And I find this to be interesting as well. If you consider that what is the advantage of the Jew, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then second of all, well, Paul never got to the second of all in Romans 2. I'll give you the second of all. Second of all, they produced the Christ. That Jesus Christ was born of Israel according to the flesh. And that through the provision of Jesus Christ, through Israel then, salvation comes to mankind. As the Lord testifies, salvation is from the Jews. As far as that goes. So uh, the idea of being rejected here becomes in particular a testimony to grace because it was not a uh, they are a chosen race. That's not to say they are a superior race or that they are a superior people or God picked them because they were so devout. They were so faithful. They, uh, they were so wonderful that they were God's gift to humanity. No, they were uh, probably the most obstinate, stiff necked uh, people in the history of mankind. And Scripture describes that. He doesn't, it says not many mighty. He chooses the weak things to shame the strong. I think he chooses the most obstinate to demonstrate the greatest amount of grace. But he's rejected. Now, here are... Did I give you the three rejections already? Okay. Elders, chief priests, and scribes. Rejected by the elders, rejected by the chief priests, rejected by the scribes. I find that fascinating. At least David had his own tribe support. When Saul died, at least Judah said, hey, you're our king now. And the other 11 tribes said no. Uh, Jesus didn't even get one out of 12. He was rejected by the elders, and that includes the elders of the tribe of Judah. The family clan and tribal elders demonstrated the political rejection of Christ. 
The priesthood leadership demonstrated the spiritual rejection of Christ. And then the scribes, the educational leadership, demonstrated the academic rejection of Christ. There are parallels to that in uh, church history, but I'm going to let that go for now. All right. He must be killed. Ooh, what happened to my ENF? That happened last week, too. I didn't have an ERF last week, either. All right, well, let me give you ENF then verbally. That's right, I had meant to uh, put these in the slideshow. All right, point E, he has to be killed. He has to be killed. I think uh, a neat uh, testimony to this is Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Although if you want the gospel record on this, uh, point E, be killed. It's the fifth of the half, to, the fourth of the half twos, and it's Matthew sixteen twenty one, Mark eight thirty one, and Luke nine twenty. Again, all three of the Synoptic Gospels record this: Matthew sixteen twenty one, Mark eight thirty one, Luke nine twenty two. He has to be rejected and killed. Acts chapter 2, and Peter uh, describes this. Uh, sermon begins in verse 14. I'm going to pass by a lot of that. Let me get to, although just simply take note that he does reference Joel in uh, verse 16. Uh, this is that, this is that of which Joel spoke. Uh, it doesn't say that this is a complete fulfillment. It just says that this is consistent with Joel's message. Of course, Joel's message is pointing ahead to second advent. Uh, and, and we've taught that a number of times. I hope we're clear on that. But then in verse uh, 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. It was full public knowledge that Jesus was a miracle worker, and even the unbelievers testify to that. We have secular history that records to that. And they, were, uh, they could not dispute the miracles. That's part of why they were so insistent on putting him to death before he did too many miracles and everybody followed after him. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge, See, some people try to combine those. Scripture separates them every time. His predetermined plan is his sovereignty and his decree. His foreknowledge is a separate issue, and they're always related, but they're never equated. Wow, that was good. I'm going to write that down. They're always related, but they're never equated. They're always kept distinct. And, and, and uh, we'll talk about that perhaps here. But delivered over by the predetermined plan, that's divine decree if you're reading our systematic theology this week, uh, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put them to death. So this is part of how we understand that it is a have-to. The death is a have-to. It is a have-to according to God's decree. It is a have-to according to God's predetermined plan. It is a have-to according to what he has prophesied already in his, in his word, that he would suffer, that he would be betrayed, that he would die. I mean, Psalm 22 has been there for a thousand years, testifying to the crucifixion. And yet, is there a human element involved in getting it done? Of course. That's where foreknowledge comes in. God knew who the instruments the agents were going to be based upon the choices they made so you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put them to death so you know humanly speaking obviously there's a jewish component to the crucifixion because they're the ones that demanded it there's a gentile component to the crucifixion because it's the romans are the ones that did it right ultimately there's a human a universal human component because all of us are the sinners that put jesus christ on the cross i put him on the cross i'm the sinner I've got to understand that. But beyond the human components, of course, we realize, I, I like this verse here, the, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God's purpose will be accomplished. He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, we're told in Revelation 13. 
that when God put a plan into motion that it, that permitted rebellion, that this becomes the necessity. He said, I'm going to put a plan into motion that will include rebellion, that will include the provision for rebellion. And that provision was going to be the death of his son. So this is uh, part of the have to in terms of being killed. And then point F, being raised on the third day. Being raised on the third day. Same verses as point E. Same exact verses. Matthew 16:21, Mark 8:31 and Luke 9:22. Being raised up on the third day. Part of the have tos. It's a necessity that God was not going to accomplish our redemption and leave or abandon uh, the soul of his son. He prophesied concerning that. David wrote in the Psalms concerning that, that, that God would not allow his Holy One to suffer decay, that God would not abandon his soul in Sheol, that he would not have that eternal separation. The, the anguish of, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It encompassed three hours of darkness on the cross. But let me ask you this. When was that fellowship restored? Okay, yeah. Yeah, some people don't think. They think that, well, you know, it was the resurrection. No, I believe the, 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 the fellowship was restored. When he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, there was fellowship again with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. That um, that, that fellowship was reestablished while he was on the cross. And as he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's a, that's a believer with, with intimacy and fellowship there. All right. Yeah, we got a lot of things coming up. I'm looking forward to the Passion Week. I'm looking forward to the cross itself. Should the Lord delay this long, this series is really going to be pretty involved at that point of, uh, of study. So being raised on the third day. So many things. Obviously, the plan is for eternal life. The plan is for eternal fellowship. That uh, the idea of there being no resurrection is unthinkable. We're about to get to that section Sunday morning. We're going to start that section in 1 Corinthians 15. That how can you say there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, we're all still unbelievers. We're dead in our sins if Jesus wasn't raised. So we'll have more to say on the necessity of the resurrection, not in this class as much as we'll really develop it out in our 1 Corinthians series Sunday morning. Wonderful how these two classes are coinciding here at this point. All right, point three then, Peter. Let's look at Peter, the useful idiot for Satan's efforts to discourage Jesus. Now, the the worst thing here, the adversary has lots of tools. Every unbeliever on the planet is one of his tools. But the ones he enjoys using the most are the ones that don't belong to him. Isn't that the nature of rebellion? (laughs) The nature of fallen man, I think it's the nature of fallen angel and fallen man. That no matter what you have that's yours, you take great pleasure in taking what doesn't belong to you. And even though this world lies in the power of the evil one, and even though every unbeliever is a, is a, a brood of vipers, the offspring of our adversary, uh, the, the tools that he enjoys the most are the ones that don't belong to him. He loves taking a believer and disorienting him turning his focus backwards against what he's supposed to be focused on. And so Peter here is the stumbling block. Peter is the tool. And Peter is called Satan. And when you're serving somebody, you're the tool in somebody's hand, you're the agent or the minion through which something's done, it is a fair statement to call you by this other name as 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 uh, the Lord calls Peter here, Satan. Peter is Satan. Peter is an adversary. And he is serving the adversary. And so the rebuke is to Peter personally, but then through Peter to the one that's whispering in Peter's ear. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And the language here is so parallel. The began to rebuke him is so parallel to Jesus began to show his disciples. Do you see that there in verse 21? There's the began to show his disciples. Here we've got the began to rebuke him. 
And I think that the, the parallel construction there is not accidental. I think it serves to, to bring out how vivid this was. Jesus was not just giving a one-time only message saying, I'm going to the cross. He gave a series of messages, probably a series of messages that addressed all of these have-tos. A series of messages about have-to-going to Jerusalem. A series of messages about having to be rejected. A series of messages about having to be killed. A series of messages about having to be raised. We don't know how many messages there were. We just know that there was multiple messages over time. And that being the case in verse 21, we look at Peter in verse 22 and wonder, did he have just a one-time uh, a one-time failure here where he one time said, oh no, this is I don't like this? Or were there a series of messages where Peter began to rebuke him? Where over a number of comments, over a number of days, it finally reached the point where he used the oath and said, God forbid it. And that Christ was very patient... In each of these messages leading up, he was very patient with each of these foolish things and all these wrong statements, all of these uh, grumblings and all of these other messages of rebuke. If he patiently endured these rebukes until God's name was invoked, until the God forbid it, until the, the Meganoita, until this very powerful language here, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And when God's name was invoked, there couldn't be any more silence. He had to drop the hammer here on Peter at this point. So, you know, do we know with certainty that there were multiple times that Peter said something? No, but I think it is consistent. I think it's parallel with verse 21 in that the multiple messages of verse 21 are parallel to Peter's multiple instances. Multiple instances. And, and, and it may be that Peter was not uh, at first in uh, open rebellion. It may be that Peter was still uh, dealing in the, in the hopefulness of the potentialities. Right? Saying, well, maybe it won't come to that. Maybe uh, uh, the, the elders won't re reject you. Maybe the, you know, it won't come to that. Maybe uh, if we just preach hard enough that uh, uh, the Jews will listen to the message. Right? So it is possible that, that he... Uh, he kept. Uh, he was unwilling to rule out those potentialities as early as Christ did. He didn't develop that conviction, and and obviously, if we are slow to develop a conviction we don't like, then uh, we're going to come into account for that. If it's the conviction, then it's the conviction, and whether we like it or not, we have to accept it when He makes His will known. So, uh, yeah, in my thinking on this, there were a number of messages, and there were a number of. Uh, problems that Peter had, but as, uh, as Peter started to grow in that, and when he gets to the point to say, God forbid it, Lord, that's where Jesus put his foot down, dropped the hammer, and hit Peter hard right between the eyes. When he says, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you, this is the, the blatant contradiction, uh, the giving voice to the lie. You know, the adversary, when he tempted Eve, was able to whisper things. He was able to, uh, to question things. He was able to you know, insinuate things. But it finally gets to the point where he is able to blatantly say, Thou shalt not die. God knows that the day you eat from it, you'll become like him. Right? But before the blatant, uh, overt contradiction, there were the insinuations along the way. Same thing here with Peter finally gets to a blatant statement of contradiction. This shall never happen to you. Never. No, not ever. A firm, powerful, absolute contradiction. And it flies in the face of, of Jesus' statement of, of the have-tos. So he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now, the stumbling block is something else. And the explanation given here is, Where is your mind fixed? Jesus kept his mind focused on the things of God. Jesus kept his mind focused on the things of God. And because he was focused, he was the first to develop this conviction. Jesus kept his mind focused on the things of God, which produced his conviction of the reality. 
Of all the disciples, he was the most focused because he never drifted into sin. Every other disciple would have their moments of carnality. They'd have their moments where they were not focused on the things of the Lord. And so whatever that ratio was of time in fellowship and time out of fellowship and time focused on the Lord and time focused on self, obviously every single one of the uh, disciples had some kind of ratio involved there. Jesus Christ was the only one that was 100% focused on the things above. Never sinned. It's described here in verse 23. You are The reason why he's a stumbling block, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And remember what a stumbling block is. A stumbling block is an influence that will cause another believer to replicate your stumbling block. The, uh, the snare here is not that Peter is going to overturn the cross. The stumbling block is that, that uh, Jesus in his humanity will, will develop the thinking of Peter. To change his thinking to the things of man rather than the things of God. That's the stumbling block. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, I have debated this with other believers. I've debated this with pastors that uh, aren't comfortable considering, you know, a what if, you know, that that Jesus could have failed. I won't debate that here this morning, because obviously God cannot sin, and he was undiminished deity, it is God. We understand that, but in his humanity, remember, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What it was the danger there for his humanity? And I don't know that we will ever understand the true danger of his humanity. All we can do is accept his statements. And Jesus Christ declares that Peter is not only a stumbling block, but a stumbling block to himself. You are a stumbling block to me, it says. So, depending on... What he meant by that, we have to accept the truthfulness of what he said. We can appreciate the truthfulness for what he said. You are a stumbling block to me. All right. Now, people will dispute that. They'll say, oh, no, no, no. Peter wasn't a stumbling block. He couldn't have stumbled. Well, take that up with the Lord. The Lord made the statement. I'm just reading it. All right. But Jesus kept his mind focused on the things of God, which produced his conviction of the reality. Peter kept his mind focused on the things of man. Peter kept his mind focused on the things of man, which dwells on alternate potentialities. You know, if you're not theocentric in your thinking, if you're anthropocentric in your thinking, if you're man-centered, self-centered, then does that lead you to being focused and convicted on reality? Or does that open the door to wishful thinking, hopefulness, dreaming about the fantasies of what might be? And obviously, when you start dealing with fantasies of what might be, then you obviously you fantasize to the best you can imagine, right? Unless you're just such a total pathetic pessimist that all you do is fantasize to the worst that could happen. I guess some people do that, their carnality. When you're focused on yourself, you just automatically plunge to the worst. What a gloomy outlook that would be. But, you know, if you're focused on man, see, you know, if we go into this church relocation project focused on man instead of focused on God, then we can get puffed up with all kinds of pride. We can get full of ourselves. We can start imagining, uh, you know, a 50,000 square foot facility. We can start imagining, uh, you know, all this glorious thing. And we're, oh, we're just doing it for the Lord, right? We're trying to build a monument to ourselves. And things like that. And so we start, uh, our imagination goes into overdrive. And we start dreaming about, oh, the perfect uh, this and the perfect that. And, oh, wouldn't this be swell and all this other stuff. And we get full of ourselves. And, you know, you live in the fantasy world too long, and where do you end up? But you keep focused on the things of God, and very quickly you find yourself convicted of the reality. And we find all throughout, we find when uh, the life of Jacob was this way, 
If you're focused on the things of God, divine guidance gets you there pretty quick. If you're focused on the things of man, well then, you plunge into those realms and it doesn't take long to get there either. Same thing with the life of David's study. Every study we've seen, this uh, this uh, pattern has come out. So, when it comes to uh, being focused on the things of God and how quickly do you come to a conviction of something, I think that, uh, you know, obviously we need wisdom in these choices. Our, our deacons need wisdom and uh, every believer in the church needs wisdom. Before we go spend a bunch of money, we're going to get the, the, we have to get the approval of the membership and things like that. Um, and, but who's going to be convicted? Who's going to be convicted sooner than others will be convicted? Who will be the slowest to come to a conviction? See. And, uh, you know, when it comes to making choices and so forth, uh, believers that are focused on the things of God, believers that are consistent in the prayer meetings, are going to develop a conviction sooner than believers that are not. Believers that are under consistent teaching are going to come under a conviction sooner than believers that are not. And we see the pattern laid out here. In fact, if you're not being renewed in the spirit of your mind, if you're not being convicted of the things of the Lord, then the Romans 12 tells us that if you're not being transformed through the renewing of your mind, you're being conformed to this world. And I find it interesting, you know, of course, everybody has an opinion. That's great. We like opinions. Um, but if, if an opinion is expressed that is so blatantly worldly, that is so blatantly contrary to um, teaching, that is completely inconsistent with the tenor of this ministry, you know, if, if uh, let me just pick something wild. What if uh, a believer steps up at our, we're going to have a business meeting to approve, uh, you know, $250,000 for two acres of land and $700,000 or something, $800,000 to construct a building, something like that. And, uh, but then someone steps up and says, you know what? We really need a bowling alley. Or, or we need to have, uh, whatever. You know, something just, you know, we need uh, we need a, a singles activity or you know something that's just not consistent with this ministry or what we've been praying for, what we've been discussing, or what we've been uh, you know something that's just the the antithesis of uh, uh, you know we need we need a uh, a, a baptistry or we need uh, an infant uh, baptismal font. Well, in case you hadn't noticed, we're, we're not we're not an Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox church, or we're not we don't we don't sprinkle our infants. And why would we do that? Or we think the pastor needs to dress in a robe, or something, right? If if those ideas come up, and you realize, well, where's that thinking coming from? It's clearly not consistent with the ministry. It's not consistent with the message. It's not consistent with the Bible as it's been taught. It's not consistent with the prayer meetings. I, I, that, would, that would shock me to come from one of our consistent uh, prayer praying deacons, for example. Is any of this making sense? And what provides, see, this is when the New Testament talks about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. When the New Testament talks about being of one mind, invariably those passages, Colossians and elsewhere, those passages are coming in the, in the context of corporate prayer. When it comes right down to it. And so uh, we've got some different things there. And that's part of what we're going to discuss when we discuss what, what are we doing when we, are, uh, when we are holding a church vote, for example. When we uh, put something to a vote, are we voting because we're political? Are we voting because we are, uh, you know, we're patriotic Americans and democracy is the American way? Majority rules? Now, uh, technically now, let's, let's consider what a vote is. It is a declaration of a conviction. And uh, I brought this up with the, with the deacons, and, and we may find that we... Uh, uh, that we're going to be phrasing the, the, the vote in this way, is that a, a vote is not a for or against, it's not a one side wins and another side loses. The vote is a declaration of a conviction in terms of the will of God. 
And every believer is entitled to to declare what their conviction is. Each one must be firmly convinced in his own mind. The conviction that you have, have is before the Lord. And so, you know, calling a pastor, calling a buying property, whatever it is, the church vote is. Robert Rice just accepted the pulpit there in uh, Indiana, and they had a church vote. You know, it's not a matter of this many voting yes and that many voting no. It's the declaration that I take a stand to say I am convicted. It is my conviction that it is the will of God for this person to be my pastor. And that's what you're declaring. And then somebody else stands up and says, no, I do not have the conviction that this person is to be our pastor. And there we've, we've explored the will of God in terms of um, recognizing the conviction of the believer priests of this, of this assembly. All right, in any event, that's... Uh, where we're going to focus there in terms of being locked in on the things above. Producing a conviction of a reality. And the Lord was the first to glean that. The other disciples took longer. Peter was the most outspoken in his hang-ups. But I think uh, there were others that would have said something sooner or later too. Not just Peter. I think all of them were having struggles. If you get your mind focused on the things of man, you will invariably drift away from a reality to potentialities of what you want to see happen. And that's the point there. Jesus followed his rebuke of Peter. Point four. Jesus followed his rebuke of Peter with a challenging metaphor for all disciples to take up their cross. The rebuke is get behind me. The rebuke is, get behind me. Get out of my sight. I'm going this direction. You're in my way. So get behind me. It's the hardest thing, perhaps, for believers to state when, in fact, it's necessary for us to isolate from evil, when it's necessary for us to separate from unbelief. But let's face it, Peter's not walking by faith here. This is unbelief. And the Lord has to separate from that. What concord hath light with darkness? What harmony hath Christ with Belial? And when Peter does not share the conviction and does not share the purpose and is not working towards the same end Jesus is working towards, Jesus has to tell Peter to get lost. There comes a point in time when we must, when that becomes an application of church discipline, when a believer has to be removed. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. If you don't do this, it will spread. It will affect others. And so this metaphor is throwing down the gauntlet, as it were. It's not only directed towards Peter, but all of the disciples have to make the choice. Are they going to take up the cross? Are you and I going to take up the cross? So point four, Jesus followed his rebuke of Peter with a challenging metaphor for all disciples to take up their cross. Now the use of staros here, the use of cross is interesting because when you think about first occurrences of a term you know, forget the fact that you know that Jesus dies on the cross um, this, is, this is pivotal because he mentioned he has to go to Jerusalem he has to suffer, he has to be rejected, he has to be killed but he doesn't say how he's going to be killed he doesn't use the word cross in verse 21. He just says that he has to be killed. Right? It's almost as if, you know, this was already too much for Peter. You know, can you imagine if he would have used the word cross in verse 21? Then how, how uh, bonkers would Peter have gone? He doesn't use the word cross in verse 21. He just said he must be killed. It's not specified the manner of the, uh, the execution. And, and there have already been times where in uh, Nazareth, for example, they try to run him off a cliff. There were already other times where they picked up stones to stone him. There have been previous attempts on his physical life. And so, you know, you can imagine as Jesus is teaching about this, that 
again, the disciples are focused on the things of man and they're, they're pondering the different potentialities that, well, maybe, you know, a mob will trample him or maybe an angry mob will stone him or maybe he'll be shoved off a cliff or maybe he'll be thrown down from a high place in the temple or, you know, there were any number of means by which he could meet a, uh, a nefarious demise. He does not use the word cross. He does not speak, until he gets to verse 24, in verse 21, he does not speak of a cross. He does not speak of the, 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 the most vile shame of their day in the, in the most painful and excruciating execution the Romans had. The cross was the death of a criminal. The cross was the death of a traitor uh, for, for high treason against Rome. Um, you know, the, the the simple way was just to lop off the head. I mean, Romans were very fond of, of decapitation. That's uh, in, in Acts chapter 12, James is decapitated. That's the standard way. It's the quickest way. The cross is only when you're trying to make a very vivid point and stretch out an, an agonizing, torturous death over three or four days. Normally, a crucifixion victim could last multiple days. Jesus was very unique in that uh, he died on the same day that he was crucified. So he says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That deny right there says adjust your thinking, quit focusing your attention on the things of man. He must deny himself and take up his cross, his staros. And so right here, he took what was already a tough message and just multiplied it. And he tells Peter, get out of here. And then he gives a tougher message and says, it's time to take up the cross. Now, this is a pattern. We've seen it before. We saw it in John 6. Do you remember this pattern? We saw where he taught a message and people reacted. So he got tougher with it. He taught about eating. Uh, he said, I'm the bread of heaven. And, and they had a problem with that. So then he starts talking about eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> and each step of the way they had a problem. They were reacting. And rather than kind of back off and say, oh, oh I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cause such a stir. He follows up with an even tougher message to say, are you going to get with the word of God or not? And I think that same pattern is what's happening here because he spoke of a death in general terms. Peter reacted. So then he says, it's time to take up the cross. And he uses the word cross in verse 24. And I think he's getting tougher with the disciples. All right, let's read through 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes... To come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. It's soul, and we're going to describe that for you here in a moment. Uh, so for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. we got two categories there. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. If you put it into a comparison setting, there is no comparison, but people are making that, that choice every day. They're paying that price all the time. And they have no clue what it is that they're forfeiting, what it is they're forsaking, or why they're doing it. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? How do you buy eternal life? All right, uh, Mark and Luke are very similar. We don't need to turn there. But I think there is so much in this, um, and I really want to expand it some here. We we're almost at the top of the arrow already. Um, he says to his disciples, if. All right, if. What's if? If is, again, the language of potential. If there are some that will and some that won't. But for the ones who do, here's... The necessity, all right? If, if anyone wishes, what's a wish? What's a desire? What's a choice that you're going to make? So we have choices to make, either to follow Christ or not follow Christ. But to follow Christ, there's a have to. And this is why I, I, you know, I hate to leave you with this in our final six minutes, but I want you to at least look at the words, consider the terms, and over the next week, Prayerfully think through the concept here, because we've, we've given con contrast already between the want-tos and the have-tos. Here we have both in the, same, in the same verse, because there's a want-to followed by a have-to. If anyone wishes to come after me, all right, that's a want-to. The language is to, to wish, to desire, to will, 
All right. So if you want to, you can make that choice. But here's the have to that goes with it. He must. Same terminology we had in, with Jesus where he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, so forth. He must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So if you want to, there's a have to. Then verse 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. There's a have to. There's a want to and a have to there. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're going we're to outline that for you. But notice what will it profit? The key, I think, to understanding all of the, the want to's and all of the, the, the uh, volitional applications is this idea on profit. What is the end result? What is the profit? What is the treasure laid up in heaven? What is the consequence, the reward? Um, and, and consider, of course, do, is, is uh, simply doing the bare minimum rewardable? Is it rewardable to do the have-tos? Or is it rewardable to do the want-tos? Which is it that God loves? The, the one that gives under necessity or compulsion? Scripture says, no, God loves a cheerful giver. What's rewardable are the want-tos, not the have-tos. So um, that will uh, that will come into the picture here as well. All right. Any questions on that? Anything before before I let you go? Yes, ma'am. Um, can Satan use us as tools if we're walking in the light? Um, no. I mean, yes and no. Um, Satan can do what God permits him to do. Satan can use you as a tool only so far as he can use you as a stumbling block to somebody else who's not walking in the light. Uh, if you are walking in the light, the adversary can point to you and use you as a, as a snare to somebody else who's walking in darkness to provoke a jealousy or to provoke uh, uh, another mental attitude sin and so forth, to provoke an anger or some, you know, an idea that, well, who do they think they are kind of thing. And you're doing nothing wrong. You're, you're walking in the light. You're obeying Jesus Christ. But the adversary will lift you up and, and work in, in, in that. I think the... Uh, yes, thank you. This is, uh, there's a scripture I wanted to look at in First uh, Chronicles 20. I had meant to get here earlier. And, um, I'm sorry, 21. First Chronicles 21. <clears throat> First Chronicles 21 says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now, David's a believer. Cannot be demon-possessed. Not only is he a believer, but he's a spirit-indwelled believer as a prophet. Although, at this point, he's rather carnal. But to whatever extent this happens, where he moved David. And the idea of being moved. Remember, no prophecy of his own private interpretation. But as men were moved, as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, they spoke the things of the Lord. And, and so I think if we understand moved in the sense of spiritual influence, inspiration, Whispering in the ear, for example, uh, just as the Holy Spirit will move a prophet to speak uh, the utterances of God. Uh, the language of moved here, move David a number of Israel, demonstrates a spiritual influence. And we're told, don't believe every spirit, test the spirit, see if they're from God. Well, here was a moving, here was a spiritual impulse, and David listened to it. Rather than testing to see, hmm, is this the Lord telling me to do this? And then um, David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba, even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number. And Joab said, um, I don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> now, if you're seeking divine guidance, and even a godless son of a gun like Joab says, We think this is a problem, <laughs> what are you really doing? Okay. Even Joab knows this is wrong. And Joab was not heavenly minded. Um, 
Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Say, so, you know, what would the census indicate? Our power is not in how many soldiers we have. Our power is that the battle is the Lord's and we serve him, we're his servants. Joab understands that. Joab was the general and he realized, you know, he won battles he never should have won. But because he was David's general, the Lord provided the victory there. So, um, anyway, the, to answer the question again, the, the, the nature of what the adversary can do if he motivates, if he uh, whispers, if he influences, I think is something we want to consider. Because you and I, we cannot be demon-possessed. We cannot be controlled. But can we be motivated? Oh, David was very carnal. Yeah. No, we never see an example of that. No. No, we never see an example of a believer walking in the light who then is led by uh, a fallen angel. And that's the thing. When you're led by the Spirit of God, you're led by the Spirit of God. We're told to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And, and so if you're led by the Holy Spirit, you're not controlled by the flesh and you're not listening to the adversary. Yeah, so that brings in Romans chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians as well. All right, outstanding question. We will come back to this because the idea of taking up a cross becomes uh, vital. What is a cross? What is, I mean, obviously his cross was a cross, but in a metaphor, what is our cross? What am I supposed to bear? What is my work assignment? What is my uh, volitional testing? You know, do I have a line in the sand beyond which I'm not willing to go? And so we'll talk about that when we uh, come back to this one week from today. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.